Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Just a few short verses, but some good verses today. We've got, a, we've got some really good stuff coming up the next week or two, some, some of my favorite stories. Uh, and so I'm glad we're in this stuff. Of course, there's a lot of good, good, good stories that I like. It seems like every time we get to a passage, I say, boy, that's one of my favorite stories. But I guess that's a good thing. And we're probably some, some of you like that too. And uh, it's a lot of good stuff in God's Word. Mark chapter 8. We'll start in verse 31 and read through verse 36. And this is Jesus speaking here in verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this, so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning. I thank you for these good words, and I pray, God, that these words would touch our hearts today. I pray, God, that just in the reading of them now, that you've already begun to work on our hearts, that your Holy Spirit has begun to reveal to us and, and open our eyes and our hearts to things maybe that are in our life that we're not aware of, maybe truths in your word, dear Lord, that you're just going to bring forth to us today and all to help us to draw closer to you. And so, God, I pray that you would just hide me behind the cross. I pray that you would help me not to ramble on, but I pray that you would help me to preach and teach your word in a way that's going to bring glory to you and make your word a better understandable to us, dear Lord. But I pray that it's the Holy Spirit that does the speaking and the teaching today through your words, not through the words that come out of my mouth. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, last week we saw in the verses we looked at uh, that Jesus was questioning the apostles, asking them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered correctly. He answered, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. The one that all of Israel, the Jewish people, had been waiting for had finally come on the scene. And even though the apostles had been a little bit dull up to this point in the book of Mark, it seems like, and quite uh, understanding exactly everything Jesus was teaching, it seemed as though they were finally getting it. Things were finally coming together for them as they had been with Jesus for quite a while now and seen him do the miracles that he had been working and the things that he had been preaching and been teaching. And he had had them right beside him. They had seen these things. They had taught, uh, he had taught them. They had learned from him. He had really poured into them because he was preparing them for the work that they had to do. And here today we're going to see that he's going to really prepare them for the difficulty of being a disciple. And it's the same difficulty for you and I. Jesus was, was beginning here in these verses we see today to, to, to kind of shift the way and the things that he was teaching up to this point. Because prior to this point, Jesus had not really told them about his death and resurrection. But it's here in these verses we see today that Jesus spells it out for them very clearly what's going to take place. Now, 
Even still, they didn't quite get it. I mean, how could they get it? It's easy for us because we have all of Scripture that we've read and say, well, how didn't they get it? Well, you got to imagine here, they probably wasn't thinking about Jesus dying at this point. After all, he was a young man. He hadn't really done anything that was, uh, that was horrible. He hadn't committed any crimes. He hadn't done anything sinful at all. And here was Jesus speaking in such a way, and it probably caught them off guard. It probably caught them by surprise. No doubt it did. But I believe that Jesus may have brought this up now after what took place in the verses we read last week because maybe Jesus realized they finally are getting it. When he asked him and he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah. Now others around were saying, well, he's a prophet, he's, he's Elijah, he's this, that, and the other. And Jesus said, but you, who do you say that I am? He wanted to make sure that that core group that was with him all of the time, that had seen all that he had done, he wanted to make sure that they had got it. If the ones who were the closest to him, who were around him all the time, who who had heard his teaching firsthand didn't get it, well, then it's unlikely that many of the rest were going to get it either. So Jesus really was concerned and wanted to make sure that his 12 were getting it. I think that's why he asked that question. And Peter's response showed that at least Peter, and probably the rest too, but at least Peter got it. He got it. He understood it. He knew in all that he had seen Jesus do, and all the teaching he had done, and all the miracles he had worked, and all the demons he had driven out, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus said, ah, you've answered correctly. This is the right answer. And you didn't get this from flesh and blood, Jesus said in Matthew's account. He said, the Father revealed this to you. So he knew that Peter, probably the rest of the apostles here, uh, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were getting it. They were in touch with the Father. God was speaking to him. He was revealing to him. They were seeing Jesus the Son. It was all coming together. It was all making sense. And then following Peter's recognition uh, and profession of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus begins to teach them. And that's what we see here in our first verse this morning. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. Now that's pretty, that's pretty concise right there. He told them exactly what was going to happen. Now what have we seen up to this point in the book of Mark and in the rest of the gospel accounts? Well, we've seen that the elders, that is uh, the people who would have been respected in the community that would have been higher up in the church, uh, we see the chief priests, the scribes, uh, all of these people have been coming against Jesus. Uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of these different names that we've seen, all of those would be described in this group that he's talking about here. Well, what have they been doing to this point? Where they're always coming against Jesus. They're coming against Jesus. And the very ones who had been coming against him with the desire to see that he was killed were finally, eventually, going to get what they desired. And Jesus told the twelve here, he says, look, it's coming. The day is coming where these enemies of mine are going to overtake me, where I'm going to be killed. But then he tells them after that, he says, but look, I will rise after three days. Now, They probably didn't quite understand exactly what Jesus was saying. They probably uh, weren't quite ready to accept it. Uh, But Jesus was spelling it out for them pretty clear. Now, one interesting thing that Jesus says here, and we've seen this term or phrase, maybe I should say, a couple of times through the book of Mark, and that is the Son of Man. Now, Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer 
many things. Now, uh, we haven't talked about that, 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 that phrase here up to this point in the book. We've kind of hit on it a little bit and maybe referenced uh, it a little bit and, and maybe where it comes from, but we're going to spend a little time on that today because it's a significant phrase that Jesus utters often in the gospel accounts. Now, Jesus frequently, almost always actually, refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, was Jesus the Son of God? Well, absolutely he was. Jesus also refers to himself as the Son of God on a couple of occasions. Well, maybe a few occasions. It's not very many, though. But the majority of the time when Jesus speaks of himself, he refers to himself as the Son of Man with only a handful of times that he refers to himself as the Son of God. Now, one of those comes in John chapter 6. One of those comes in John chapter 10. I think there's another one in John chapter 11. And there may be more. We won't go over those today for time's sake, but I can uh, point you to them or you can read those chapters and you can see that in a few instances, Jesus does refer to himself as the Son of God, but very seldom. Most of the time, Jesus uses the term son of man. Now, uh, I haven't counted them personally, but I have read and uh, would believe it to be true based on the commentaries and other scholars that Jesus refers to himself as son of man 81 times. Now, the interesting thing is, is that very seldom do we see anybody else refer to Jesus as the son of man. Now, Jesus almost always refers to himself as son of man and very rarely son of God, but the, the, the script flips for the rest of the people who are around Jesus because they almost always call Jesus the son of God, and there's only a couple of instances in all of Scripture where the phrase is used that it's not Jesus who is speaking the term. Now, there is some significance, I believe, to the fact that Jesus is calling himself the son of man. I believe that there is something that Jesus wants his uh, followers here and all of those who hear of him and even us today to understand about this title that he was given to himself. Now, there's lots of different views and, and interpretations and variation on this phrase, son of man. I'll give you a couple today, but you can research on yourself if you want to hear some other ideas. But I'll give you probably the main two today uh, when it comes to the idea of son of man and son of God. Is there a difference? Is there a significance? Uh, what, what are we to make of these terms? Well, both terms refer to Jesus. Son of man and son of God, when we see in Scripture, are both clearly uh, talking about Jesus, at least in the New Testament. Now, there are times in Scripture where all humanity is referred to as son of man, where it's not talking about Jesus. In the Psalms, for instance, there's a psalm that talks about the son of man, but it's not probably talking about Jesus specifically, but more all of humanity, that we are, uh, that we are human beings. The term can mean human being. And that would apply to Jesus too. Jesus was a human being. He was born in the flesh of Mary. And that is one thing that we can take from that term, son of man, and we're not wrong to do so. There are also scriptures, though, that refer to the sons of God that are talking not just of Jesus, but that are talking to God's people, those who are God's children, those of us who are Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, we could be called sons of God. So sometimes we see those same terms that are attributed to Jesus also applied to human beings. If we're a follower of God, we are sons of God. Uh, if we are in the flesh, then we are a son of man because we are born of man. Now, in the most simplest sense, both of those things are true of Jesus as well. He was born in the flesh, so he is a son of man because he was born from Mary. 
but he is also the Son of God. That's pretty clear. We can't really deny that through Scripture. It's told <laughs> repeatedly to us that Jesus is the Son of God. And so both of those phrases are true. Uh, when we see that Jesus was the Son of Man, we can know that he was fully human. We can know that he was a human being. When we see that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, well, that applies to his deity. That is, he is God. He is the Son of God. He is God, but he's also of a man. So those terms could simply be referring to Jesus as letting us know that, yep, he's fully God and he's fully man. Uh, that's the most simplest way, but I believe that Jesus may have had something else in mind when he used this term, Son of Man. I think he may have been trying to point, especially his original hearers, to something else in the Old Testament. And that would be in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Now, if you want to read uh, this morning, we're going to flip there. If you want to flip, you can. If not, just listen closely. Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Now, there's a lot of, a lot of gnarly stuff that goes on in Daniel. We won't get into all that today. A lot of visions he sees of these really gnarly beasts. And we won't talk about what those things may or may not mean. But he saw these visions and he saw this one, the Ancient of Days, which is no doubt God himself. And in this vision, we're going to read one of the things that he saw. And what he sees is the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will, that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, who does that description remind us of? Well, it sounds to me a lot like Jesus. One who is given authority. One whose kingdom will always be. It will never be destroyed. That sounds like Jesus who is to come. So this one that Daniel sees in his vision who's going to come, who's going to come before the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, who's going to come before God, that is the Ancient of Days, here we see in this vision, it's spelled out to us, at least to me it seems like, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, the Messiah that was to come. And what is the title that is given to him by Daniel here? He said he sees one like a son of man. Well, he was one like a son of man. That is, he looked like a human. It was somebody who appeared to be a human, but he was not merely a human. He was more than a human. He was one who was able to sit at the right hand of God. He was one who was seen coming on the clouds, which is language that we see often in the Old Testament when God is on the scene and around. And here's this one who is like a son of man, who is coming in a human form, but he's way more than a son of man. He's also a son of God. And here we see this term describing one who is going to come, who is going to set up his kingdom, who is going to be in authority forever, and no one is, able, is ever going to be able to destroy him. Now, this to me sounds like it's most certainly 
pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, the people that Jesus was speaking to, especially Jewish people, especially probably those who were closest to him, they would have known this, uh, this prophecy. They would have known the writings of what we call the Old Testament. They would have known the writings of Daniel. And probably a lot of the people he was talking to would have as well. They would have known this story about one like a son of man coming and his kingdom being the kingdom and his authority being the authority. And I believe that Jesus used the term son of man so often because Jesus wanted his hearers to know, I am the one. The one that you read about in Daniel, the one that you've been looking for for all these years, I am him. I am the Son of Man. I have come to you as a man, but I am also the Son of God. I am one who is, who, is, who is going to bring up my kingdom. After all, Jesus started his ministry by saying, Repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. The very kingdom that Daniel is speaking of here, I believe, is the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And by using this phrase of himself, Son of Man, I don't think Jesus was simply saying, I'm a man like you although that is true, and he may have meant to get that point across too in, in some way, I believe what Jesus really was saying is, I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the Messiah. I think that's why Jesus now chose to tell the disciples this, because Peter had got it. Ah, you're the Messiah. And then as soon as Peter says that, Jesus begins to teach, and he tells them this. Here, uh, the Son of Man's going to come, and he's going to be, he, he, the Son of Man is here, and he's going to be uh, killed by all of these people, and he's going to rise after three days. I believe that Jesus was pointing back to this passage, to this event that took place, and that's why Jesus used the term Son of Man so often of himself when he was speaking. All right, let's continue on a little further. Verse 32, let's look at uh, Peter's response here. He was openly talking about this, so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, this is an interesting passage here. I believe that there's probably a lot of good application in this passage that maybe we don't even realize is there. Now, Jesus knew what he had to do. He knew what he was sent to do. He came to give his life for us. He came so that his life would be given, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that by his blood we can be forgiven. If we come to him and put our faith in him and follow him, then we will be forgiven of our sins, and we will be called sons of God. And Jesus knew what he had to do, but Peter probably didn't quite realize it. I mean, Jesus had just spelled it out, but it probably wasn't all making sense. It probably wasn't all clicking. It probably wasn't all connecting with Peter when Jesus said this. And Peter jumps up and says, or excuse me, Peter jumps up and begins to rebuke Jesus. Now, we have some more details about this in other scriptures, uh, but Peter begins to re rebuke Jesus and say, no, this isn't going to happen. I'm not going to let this happen. Now, that seems like a natural thing to do. If any of us heard a friend or a family member say, oh, you know, some people are coming to kill me, we would say, all right, we're going to be here and protect you. We're going to call the law. We're going to keep this from happening at all costs. We're not going to let this happen. Well, that's a natural response. I don't think that that's unnatural what Peter was doing uh, and, and not really evil, at least not in his heart. He wasn't doing anything that he thought to be evil. He was doing something that from a worldly standpoint, from a human point of view, seemed to be the good and right thing to do. The same thing that probably all of us would do for a friend or family member if they told us their life was in danger. We would try our best to keep them from being killed. And that's what Peter was doing here. But Peter was thinking strictly in a worldly way. One, because he didn't quite have the big picture. He didn't know the whole picture. 
even though Jesus had kind of begun to reveal things to them, they still didn't quite get the big picture. They didn't know everything that had to take place. They didn't know about Jesus going to the cross, although Jesus was about to tell them that. Even still, that probably went a little over their head too at the time. But, but, but what Peter was doing here is he was just standing up for his friend. And so he began to rebuke Jesus. Now, what's interesting is Jesus' response to Peter here. Jesus says in verse 33, But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Now, what a, what a tough response. I wonder if that caught Peter off guard. I wonder what Peter, what Peter thought when Jesus turned to him and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter was probably thinking, what are you, what are you talking about, Lord? What, I'm, huh? Now, when Jesus says here, Get thee behind me, Satan, I don't believe that Peter in that moment was possessed by the devil. I don't think Satan had taken over Peter. But the thought and the, and the idea behind what Peter was saying was one that was not of God. It was a very human response. It was a very worldly response. It was a very evil response in that it was something that came from Satan. This is, the, this is what Satan wanted. Now, Peter probably didn't quite realize what was going on. He probably wasn't possessed by Satan, and he probably didn't have any evil intent when he said this statement. But at the heart of what he was saying, what Peter was trying to get Jesus to do, uh, or trying to keep him from doing, was going to the cross. That's what Peter was trying to get Jesus to do. Now, Peter didn't mean any evil by it, but that's the very type of thing that Satan desired. If you remember when Jesus started his ministry, it was Satan who tempted him. He tried every which way he could to get Jesus tempted, to keep him from going to the cross. Uh, all throughout Scripture, Satan has tried everything he could to stop the seed of Jesus Christ eventually coming onto the scene, and he failed every single time. Why? Because Satan uh, was trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Or, or maybe Satan didn't even know he was going to the cross. Maybe he just thought if he could kill Jesus, that would solve the problem. Maybe even Satan thought when he Jesus was nailed to the cross, maybe at that time he still even thought he, he had won. Maybe he didn't know what was coming. But what he did know is he wanted to get rid of the Messiah. His main concern was, let me get rid of the Messiah. Let me stop the Messiah from coming. And now that the Messiah had come, Satan was trying his best to try to get rid of the Messiah. And Peter is speaking here, but he's speaking of the very things that Satan would want to take place. That is, that Jesus would not go to the cross. That is, that Jesus would, would die, that he would not continue his ministry in the way that he was going to continue it. And Jesus says to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Now, Peter thought he was doing a good thing by sticking up for Jesus and, and, and rebuking him for talking that way. Uh, Peter may have even said, look, Lord, this, I'm not going to let this happen. If people come against you, I'm going to stand. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to fight for you. This isn't going to happen. I'm not going to let these people that keep coming against you. They've been coming against you all this time. I'm not going to let them take you over. Now, Peter might have been doing a good thing, but Jesus points out where that thought really comes from and where that idea really comes from. That's a, that's a, very, that's a very human idea. That's a very man idea. That's a very worldly idea. That is not doing what God desires. Now, this verse may apply to us more so than we realize because there may be things in our life 
uh, are, are, let me say it this way, there may be things in other people's lives. Perhaps there are other brothers and sisters in Christ, and there's something that they feel God has really called them to do. Some area that they are to serve, some task that they are supposed to carry out, something that God has called them to do. Something that in our mind, we look at and we say, that is crazy. You can't do that. I'm not going to let you do that. And what we sometimes do with no evil intent in our mind is we begin to try to talk people out of doing things that God has talked them into doing. We begin to say, well, you can't go there. You can't do that thing. What are you kidding me? You don't have the ability to do that. You don't have the money to do that. That's dangerous. That's scary. You could get a disease. And we begin to think of all these reasons why if people do this, it's going to be bad for them. And almost always when we think of reasons why people shouldn't do it, it's almost always in a worldly sense. Part of the reason why we're talking them out is because God hadn't told us about it. He's told them about it. That's probably the reason why they're doing it. It's because God has convicted them of it. God has laid it on their heart. And so they are all in. But we don't see that call of God. We just see, well, dang, I can't believe they're doing that. Well, that's stupid. Well, that's costing a lot of money. Well, that's really dangerous. What, they're giving up this to do that? Wait a minute, that's not normal. That's not the way things should be. And we begin to come up with all these reasons, and we begin to tell them, look, you know, I know you're trying to do a good thing, but you really shouldn't do that. You know, maybe you need to think about what you're doing. That's not wise. That's not the way people do things. you got to think about yourself. Now, you gotta, you got to make some wise decisions. Now, you can help other people, but you got to draw the line somewhere. I mean, you gotta, you got you to gotta, you know, have a little common sense here. And boy, we come up with all these reasons that we're trying to talk people out of stuff that God has talked them into doing. And sometimes I think we're just like Peter. We don't realize what we're doing. We don't realize what we're really doing is using our worldly thoughts and using what the devil would want us to do to keep God's work from being done, to keep his kingdom from growing. We talk people out of doing the work that the Lord has called them to do. Now, what if Peter had successfully done that to Jesus? Jesus knew what he had come for. He knew what the Father had called him for. He knew he came to give his life for us. But what if Peter would have been able to convince Jesus otherwise? What if sitting around drinking tea and, and, and one day Jesus started thinking, oh, you know, you're right, Peter. You know, you're right. Maybe, maybe this is kind of foolish. I mean, I love people, but I don't have to die on the cross. Till I can still love people. I can still go around doing miracles. I mean, I can give people food. I can still do a lot of good without having to go through all that suffering. I mean, besides, if, I, if I'm around all these people, I mean, they might imprison me if I keep going the way I'm going. And those jails are dirty. I could catch no telling what kind of disease. I mean, I don't have to have like the biggest fancy. It's like, I could get me a good little shack. I could still live a good life. Maybe you're right, Peter. Maybe I don't need to let these people kill me. Maybe I'm just going to kind of take it. I can still do good. It's going to be okay. Now, what if Jesus were to let Peter convince him not to do what God had called him to do? Well, then we wouldn't be sitting here today. And if we were sitting here today, we wouldn't have any hope. We would just be looking forward to a horrible rest of our eternity. But praise the Lord, Jesus didn't give in. Because Jesus was willing to listen to the call of the Father more than he was willing to listen to the advice from his friends. They thought it was good advice. They thought they were doing a good thing, but what they were really doing, or what Peter was really doing, is he was standing in the way of what God called Jesus to do. Now, there may be something that God has put on your heart, something that you feel like you need to do, something that everybody else may be telling you you're crazy. 
you are crazy for doing that. You're going to spend all that money doing that? You're going to go to Burma where you could be killed to help a bunch of people that you don't even know and raise your kids there? Are you crazy? Don't you care about your kids? That's what people probably say about David Eubanks. I'd venture to say that there were probably a lot of people that probably said that as he, when he first said he was going over there and as he still raises his kids there and has raised them in that environment for years. There are probably a lot of people that look at him and others like him and say, he is crazy. What is he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's doing what God called him to do. Does he know it's going to be easy? Could he die tomorrow? Absolutely. Does he know that? Absolutely. Is he in some nasty, dirty places? Absolutely. Could his kids be injured and killed? Absolutely. Does he know that? Absolutely. You know why he stays? Because that's what God called him to do. And whatever the consequences may be for his situation... He knows that it's okay because God has put him there and God is going to take care of him. Now, God may be calling you to do something just that crazy. God may be calling you to do something and you may be talking yourself out of it. It may be the devil in your own mind talking you out of doing something. I can't do that. I know that mission trip's coming up and they need people to go. I know it's coming up and it's over in Asia. I can't go there. That coronavirus. I mean, I know, I know God wants me to help people, but God don't want me to get the coronavirus. I mean, I'd be, just be foolish. I mean, I can send money. Over. I can pray for those people. I don't have to go over there. That'd be stupid for me to go over there. It would be stupid. Unless God's calling you to it. And then guess what? If God's calling you to it, well, it's not quite so stupid, is it? You see, we got to get that through our mind. we got to realize that if God's calling us to something and you really feel convicted that God's calling you to it, then you need to do it. And if you face opposition, well, I'll say this, but be careful. You may need to say, get thee behind me, Satan, to the one coming against you. Now, be careful with that now. Don't be throwing that around. Maybe you don't need to say that. But maybe at the very least, that needs to come to your mind. Maybe at the very least, you need to be reminded of this story. Maybe in your mind when somebody says that, you need to say, nope, I'm not going to let them talk me into it. Maybe you don't speak it out loud, but in your mind you say, get thee behind me, Satan. I know what God's called me to do. I know how dangerous it is. I know how scary it is. I know how tough it might be, but I'm going to do it. Because God, I know you call me to do it. So if God's calling you to do something, then you do it. And if people come try to talk you out of it, well, Jesus had to face the same thing. Now, the people talking you out of it or trying to talk you out of it, they may not be evil. They may not be horrible people. They probably love you a lot. They're probably doing it because they think that's what they should do. But they're not thinking in God's concerns. They're thinking in man's ways. They're thinking about man's concerns. So if you feel God calling you to it, then you do it. Now, Let's flip the script a little bit. We don't want to be those who are like Peter. We don't want to be those who are talking people out of doing something God has talked them into. So maybe next time we hear somebody say, you know what, I think that maybe this is something I should do. I think maybe God is telling me I should do this. Instead of our first thing saying, I don't think so. I don't think God would want you to go in harm's way. 
I don't think God would want you to do that. Instead of that being our first response, maybe we just need to be silent. Maybe we just need to listen to what they say. And maybe we need to pray about it a little bit. Maybe it's not what God revealed to them. That's a possibility. Sometimes we hear things and we think God's calling us to them, and it may not really be God. It may just be our own self putting that in our mind. There are times that sometimes we feel like there's something that God is calling us to, and it may not be God. It may be our own fleshly desires that are calling us to it. So we just have to pray that God will guide us and help us to be able to discern between the two. But at the very least, next time we hear somebody that says, you know what, I think this is what I need to do. Well, let's just not be too rash to try to talk them out of it. Let's think about it. Let's pray about it and say, okay, God. God, is this of you? Is this something you really want them to do? Maybe just pray for them. Maybe just say, okay, if you feel like this is what God wants you to do, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to stand right here by you and I'm going to support you. Ain't that something? That's what Jesus needed from his apostles. He just needed their support. He needed to know that they were going to follow him, that they weren't going to abandon him, that they were going to be prepared for the work that he was putting before them. That's all he needed. He needed them to stick by, by him to the end and to know what was coming and to be ready for it and so that they could see his example and they could continue doing exactly what he had continued doing. He didn't need somebody to talk him out of what he was supposed to do. He knew what he was supposed to do and he was ready to do what he was supposed to do no matter what the cost. What he needed was somebody to stand by him and support him. And the same is true for us. So next time that person comes to you and they say, you know what, I think God really wants me to do this. It may sound crazy. It may be dangerous. It may very well indeed cost them their life. It may cost them a lot of money. It may cost them their health. It may cost them a lot of time of being around friends and family may cost them all those things. And from the worldly viewpoint, we look at those things and we say, that's insane. Who would want to live a life of poverty and sickness and possibly death when they don't have to? Who would want to do that when they could just stay here and pray for those people and send them a little money along? Who would want to leave this where they could have a good life and a good job and a good home and a good car and a good bank account. Who would want to leave this and go help those people? The one who's been called by the Lord to do so. That's who would do it. And that's who God wants us to be. Let us not be those who are easily deterred from doing what God calls us to do. And let us not be those who deter others from doing what God has called them to do. Jesus knew what he was called to do. He was called to come and give his life on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven. And Jesus fulfilled his mission. He was obedient to the Father to death. And that should be our desire, to be obedient to God to our death. Whether it's death from, from, from uh, someone coming against us because we're a Christian or whether it's because of our death of, of old age because we live a hundred years and God blesses us and takes care of us. Whatever way we should die, we should be ready to live into our death saying, God, your will be done. What you call me to, let me do it. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning. We thank you for these good words. And I pray that you help us to learn from them and live by them, God. I pray that you would help us to be attuned to you, to know that when you call us to do something, we know it's of you. God, sometimes we may think we hear from you, and it may not always be you. So I pray that you give us discernment.
to know that between the two. And God, when we know that we know that we know that you're calling us, God, when we know that there's something that you want us to do, when you just burden our heart and we can't get it off our mind, and we know we should do this, whether it's something close or something far away, whether it's easy to do or whether it's dangerous to do, God, I pray that when you call us to do something, that we'd be ready to do it. That like Jesus, we'd say, Lord, your will be done. Lord, this is tough. Lord, this is scary. Lord, I don't know if I'm ready for this, but I'm going to trust you. God, I pray that that would be our heart and our mindset in whatever we do. God, I pray that you would help us not to talk people out of things that you've talked them into. I pray that you don't let the devil use us even though we don't realize it. God, sometimes he does. He puts worldly thoughts in our minds and we speak things against your work and your will and we don't even know we're doing it. God, help us not to be guilty of that. God, we love people. We care about them. But God, we got to love you more. And so God, I pray that we'd be those who support our friends and our family and our husbands and our wives and our children, God, and what they do and what you may call them to. And God, we don't question what others do. God, that we don't judge them and say, boy, they are crazy for that. God, help us not to do that. But God, help us to look at them and say, look, if that's what you're calling them to do, then God, just let us support them and to pray for them and to be there for them. And God, I pray that in all things your will is done. I pray that if there's one today that has never accepted Jesus Christ, that today they get it, that Jesus Christ gave everything he had for them so that they could be forgiven, that he gave his life on a cross, and just what he told his disciples would happen, happened. God, just as his enemies came against him and nailed him to a cross and put him in a grave, Jesus rose from that grave, dear Lord, and we thank you for that, that we can have hope today. And I pray that if, nobody, if there's somebody in this room that's never put their faith in Jesus, that today would be the day for them that they would put their faith and trust in Him. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.